Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, Nathan Moore and Peter Galasco review the year in state politics. But first, Charlottesville Tomorrow guides us through some of the new bike and pedestrian paths in the city that we can explore in the new year. We'll also talk about how they are a key part of making connections between neighborhoods in both the city and in the county. Nathan recently went on eBay and bought his own Razor electric scooter. (laughs) So if anyone sees a six foot seven man in a blazer and a green helmet scootering around Charlottesville. (laughs) Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. Emily just wrote the article, Five New Places to Walk or Bike in the Charlottesville Area This Holiday Season. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you. Thanks. So I thought it might be interesting to start off by talking about how the three of us get around the city. Emily, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I live in the Woolen Mills neighborhood, so I carpool to work usually, and then I am close enough that I can often walk or scooter or take the bus. I have an excellent bus line that's like really close to my house and goes right to work on the downtown mall. I currently live near Stonefield, but because of the topography, I can see things like the Whole Foods and Costco, but there's no logical way for me to walk to any of them. And it's extremely frustrating because I moved here from Richmond where I could easily walk to almost anything I wanted to. We're neighbors, Elliot. (laughs) I live behind the Best Buy, like right off the bypass. And I was a student at UVA, and something that I have noticed constantly since I moved is that UVA is really not built around cars. And so I would take the bus, or I had a bike-sharing app, or I would walk anywhere I needed to go in the city. And now I only live two miles from work. I love to bike. I would bike to work every day. But the way that I get here is the bypass, and there are no bike paths. And you have to cross Emma Street to get to any other part of the city and get to the bus. So So it seems like the city and county are both making a big push to connect the area by pedestrian and bike trails. When did this effort get started? Some of these trails have been in the works for a number of years. I just went on some that have been there for like 10 years and I think it's also related, there's sort of a recent push with the urbanization movement where more people are moving into cities and part of the draw of that is that these places are more, you know, bikeable and walkable. So I think it's part of that context. What is the existing trail and bike path system like right now? So there's this great Ravana Trail managed by the Ravana Trail Foundation and that goes through a lot of woods A lot of bikers, a lot of runners know this trail really well, um, and it goes all the way around the city, so that's very cool. But something that the Piedmont Environmental Council found in this survey they did last year that reached a lot of people is that not everyone feels as comfortable on those kinds of trails. Women, for example, feel less comfortable than men on trails that are really secluded. They're worried about safety and don't feel as comfortable after dark. So the PEC is pushing for some diversity in trails and trails that are within eyeshot 
of the road, I think I just made that word up, <laughs> where where cars can see you and, and would be able to help you out in a bad situation. Yes, that's kind of exciting for me because I plan on moving to the, the southern urban ring part of Albemarle County next year, and I'll be near the upcoming trails that will be coming when the Biscuit Run Park is online, and that's uh, scheduled to be more of a commuter trail that would make it easier to get to things like Fifth Street Station and into downtown, and the trail is set up to be more of a commuter route than uh, more of a rural, rustic-y type trail system. Yeah, so what are some of the main infrastructure differences between a commuter trail and, like, a rural or rustic trail? Like with the Ravana Trail, a lot of it isn't fully paved. I mean, it's smoothed out dirt or gravel, so it's almost like you're hiking of sorts. But with some of the others, like the US 250 Trail, it will be a paved path, so it will be a lot smoother if someone's on a bike or if they have some uh, issues with mobility, so it's a, a flatter surface. You don't have to worry about tripping over tree roots or if it's been raining that there's mud pits and things washed out mm-hmm. and you can also the asphalt path also makes it possible for strollers um which is something uh, pc mentions a lot as an example of how rustic some of these trails are if anyone heard a blood-curdling scream back in the woods in the greenbrier neighborhood a couple weeks ago i came upon two snakes in very <laughs> rapid succession <laughs> hidden in some leaves as i was crossing a creek <laughs> I'm not a snake person. What were the major improvements to the pedestrian and bike trails system this year? A key loop that I talk about in this article is this Greenbrier Park loop. You can get from the Greenbrier neighborhood down towards Whole Foods and then with some recent additions that are happening, almost make it all the way downtown from there. One of the biggest changes that happened this year is this pedestrian bridge in McIntyre Park over the railroad line there that's divided McIntyre Park into two halves for a long time. And this bridge allows you to get from Charlottesville High School and the YMCA downtown, like no problem. What neighborhoods are already the most walkable and bikeable? I would encourage readers who are interested in this question to look at the Jefferson Area Bicycle and Pedestrian Plan. It's online. It has some good maps of all of the sidewalk and bicycle infrastructure in the area. The city center is really connected by sidewalks. You see like this pretty straightforward grid pattern. And there are a lot of bike lanes, clearly not on every street, we all know, but some big segments. This all seems to kind of fall away when you get towards the more subdivision-type neighborhoods. That includes some in Charlottesville, like the Rugby neighborhood and the Greenbrier neighborhood, and more into the county. What neighborhoods are still divided from each other to pedestrians and cyclists? I think one really good example of this is McIntyre Road. That was built after Vinegar Hill was demolished, and really changed the character of that part of Charlottesville. Particularly, you're no longer able to easily walk from the downtown mall into what's now the Star Hill neighborhood that cut off this whole black business district and also demolished the black business district from the downtown mall, which is now you know one of our most thriving business areas. Preston Avenue is another example. It, if you notice, gets narrower when you get into the rugby neighborhood, and that's partially because that neighborhood really fought getting a wider road. 
the reason that the part of Preston Avenue close to downtown is so wide that there was a proposal to build a massive road connecting it to Emmett Street and the opposition was it ended at about the 10th Street area in front of the Monticello Dairy so that's where it goes this wide road to a narrower one. I think basically the takeaway is that there's probably a lot of history behind a lot of these roads and we need some good history researchers to help us out with that. How does expanding pedestrian and bike paths relate to the city's approach to housing? This is something that Chris Jensik of the City Parks and Rec Department talked to me about. He sees these trails as a way to give people relief from their reliance on cars. So, you know, maybe rather than having two cars, they would have one car. Or if their car breaks down, they can still get to work without losing their job. So those things can matter a lot when you're trying to juggle all the payments and make rent work. It's also a big boost for the environment. It's another reason why people really advocate for more trails. You're, you can avoid getting in a car, so you're not putting that exhaust out there in the world. And you're also doing something that's really active and healthy, and that's supposed to lower stress. Okay, what about scooters? Should we expect more people to commute on these paths on electric scooters? I think this is really fascinating because a lot of people didn't expect the scooter revolution to happen. (laughs) The city embraced the scooters with this pilot program that they started last year, and they've continued. The county has been more reluctant to get excited about scooters. I know some Board of Supervisors members in particular were really opposed to them. The General Assembly kind of took that decision away from them this past year and said that by 2020, every locality needs to have some sort of regulation in place or the scooters can basically do whatever they want. So the county just passed a similar regulation to the city, but they're still working out some of the details. And there were some concern about having the scooters on the trails since they are motorized and the trails are kind of designed for people who are walking and other bicyclists are going at a slower pace. But I mean, if you're really in the cycling, you probably can outrun some of the scooters on the bike. So I, I think having the scooters on the trails wouldn't be that much of a hazard as people are afraid they would be. Yeah, there are those pros and cons. The pros being this is an accessible way to, to get around in some ways. I know from my personal experience, I find scootering easier than biking. I, I don't get sweaty before work, which we know is a barrier for a lot of people. Then the other side of things is, are you going to accidentally hit an old lady on a path? You don't want something like that. Or there's a lot of concern about people leaving the scooters on ramps that are meant for people with wheelchairs. And, and how are they supposed to get around these spots? Are they allowed on sidewalks right now? You're supposed to go in the bike Bike lanes, generally. But some sidewalks, I just learned this, are deceptive. They look like a sidewalk, but it's actually meant to be a multi-use path. There's an example of this on Mead Avenue, which is near my house, and I did not go on it and fell and hurt myself because of that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So for all those out there who are on Mead Avenue, you can go on that sidewalk. That's why it's so wide. Yeah, I'm looking forward to when I do move to a different part of Arbor Marls, like I'm Still in the county, but I'm close enough to the city that I can easily get on some of those trails. So it's currently, Route 29 is a barrier to me walking to a lot of the things that I would really love to do. 
Yeah, I relate to that so much. And this is part of why the, that Greenbrier Trail means more than just connecting the Greenbrier neighborhood. They're actually, the bulk of the county's population is actually in the 29 North area. So if you can get some of those places better bike infrastructure, better sidewalks, then you can get to these trails that are more protected and get downtown. The county and the city are in preliminary talks of building some sort of pedestrian and transit overpass connecting Stonefield to the Seminole Square Shopping Center at Zan Road. And really? that would unlock a lot of things. So having a safe, great, separated way to get from one side of 29 to the other. Yeah, because I think this is the case with a lot of the big roads. If you have a bike lane next to it, you still don't really feel safe. Only if you have some barrier in between the bike lane and the cars do you feel like, oh, nobody's going to hit me. Yeah, I cross Route 29 pretty often at Angus Road and, and Route 29. And I've even noticed that it's one of the shortest walk signs in the whole mm. city that I've ever been through. It's like a 20-second walk sign to cross all six lanes there oh at Angus Road and, and Route 29. And... There are two turn signals during the walk sign, and cars aren't used to seeing people walk through there, even though there's a bus stop there. So pretty much every time I've been in my car or walking across there, there are many other people going to and from the bus. It's interesting to think about what an actually pedestrian-centered city and transportation infrastructure would look like from the bike paths and from the sidewalks and the trails to things like how long is the walk sign yeah, and are cars yeah. allowed to drive through it. Right, right. So what is the end goal of expanding the pedestrian and bike paths in the city and the county? Yeah, I think it's a lot of the things we've talked about. It fills in another way people can get around. They can choose that rather than cars. They can be healthier, better for the environment and not spend as much money, hopefully. Last year, when I would talk to some of these people, when we did our story on connectivity and Biscuit Run, I was told that on average, most people in the Charlottesville and Arbor area, their point A and their point B are usually no more than two and a half miles apart. And theoretically, that's not that strenuous of a walk to do those things. But there's so many instances where the only option is to drive there or you have to take more than one bus to get there. And if you have things like frozen foods and you have to wait for a transfer, that isn't exactly advantageous. I thought that the quote about having the paths be like a metro map was really interesting. Yeah, yeah this was one of my favorite quotes from my interview with Chris Jensik, again, with the City Parks and Rec. He said that he was imagining one day having almost a subway map of Charlottesville where you have the green line going up to the McIntyre area and you have the blue line going to the Ravana River and so that you have all of these different paths. There are signs wherever you are showing you how to get to those paths so visitors can easily do that rather than taking a car. All right, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? Well, for us, uh, the reporters are going to have some uh, extra time off. We're officially closing down the newsroom on Friday, and we'll be back on January the 2nd. Uh, It's still a bit of fundraising season, so there will still be people physically there and available during that time, but there won't be any news stories over that time period unless I get really, really bored and I just start editing things and posting them. I was going to say, I believe uh, before we turned the mics on, Elliot admitted that uh, he was planning to work a fair amount over the next <laughs> week. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to work on some longer projects that I'm 
that I've been thinking about. So, oh my gosh, are you gonna do anything fun or relaxing? <laughs> yes, I'm making gingerbread cookies. Mm, that sounds good. Yeah. Have you seen the trick where you cut the head off of an angel and it looks like Baby Yoda? Oh my gosh, amazing! <laughs> like the standard angel cookie cutter. <laughs> Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda is my favorite thing to happen to the internet. Angel cookie. Look at that. Oh my oh gosh. It's so cute. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Oh wow. I'm so doing that. Well, send us pictures if yeah. you make it. Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. <laughs> Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. WTJU and the Virginia Audio Collective are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, here on Soundboard, we take a look at state news and politics, and as we do, we check in with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He's based over in the Richmond area, and I'm actually in the Richmond area speaking with him in person today. Peter, good morning. Good morning and welcome. <laughs> so uh, let's start things off. This this has been a, a pretty big year in Virginia news. Let's go through what's been going on around the Commonwealth and uh, talk about sort of a year in review here in Virginia. Certainly. Well, I think the biggest news of the year was the Democratic victory in the General Assembly, where they took the Senate 21 to 19 and the House of Delegates 54 to 43. This is the first time in, I think, 26 years that uh, Democrats have controlled the whole House or the whole legislature. And it means that with Ralph Northam uh, as governor, who's a Democrat, there are going to be a lot of changes in uh, coming in January. So... Uh, let's kind of take go through the year of, of how we got here. You know, okay. the year started off with the Democrats seemingly in some disarray with Ralph Northam's yeah. blackface scandal, um, a lot of, you know, contortions politically about that. Um, but now we're here. So let's let's kind of roll through it. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, turn of events because I think it was in February of this, this year, um, it was revealed that Ralph Northam... Uh, had appeared in a medical school in a yearbook dressed in blackface. At first he admitted it, then he denied it. And that really, just about every top Democrat in the state was calling for his resignation. Um, and furthermore, McGuire Woods, a Richmond law firm, later investigated and they couldn't really come to any conclusions. And that really uh, hurt him, uh, at least temporarily. Uh, luckily for him, though, he just hunkered down and rode it through and he's slowly regaining his approval rating and the the aforementioned legislative win by the Democratic Party is testimony to that. The, the blackface situation also spread to Attorney General Mark Herring, who admitted that he dressed in blackface while in college. And, um, and then further, the most serious of all these is Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, who was accused by two women of sexual assault. And um, that has gone, no seems to be, um, it appears that Northam has recovered, Herring will recover. I don't know if Justin Fairfax will recover from that. So as the year progressed, as you said, as you said Northam and Herring uh, kind of, you know, recovered slowly bit by bit. And I think then there was over the summer that, that tragic shooting in Virginia Beach. Right. Um, but then in terms of the polit politics around that, uh, you know, Northam called for a special session to consider some gun safety legislation, uh, which then got immediately shot down by a GOP-led Congress. Uh, yeah, the legislature did shoot it down immediately. 
Um, they wanted to push it back after the election in November, and then it was pushed back even more. And uh, that's kind of a dying breath, though, because as we mentioned, that the Democrats now control the legislature and things will be very different come January. Because in the past, you know, starting with the Virginia Tech shooting back in 2007, um, there have always been calls for more gun control in Virginia, and they've always been shot down, often in committee, before they can even reach a floor vote in the General Assembly because the Republicans controlled the committees. But anyway, there was a call. But meanwhile, there's a, another movement that's come up is uh, right after the November elections, uh, the Virginia uh, Civil Defense League, which opposes gun control, has launched, as have several other states, a very, very powerful movement, especially in rural areas, too, to block any kind of new gun control reg legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I do want to get up to that here in just a minute, sort of the, the, the backlash to the Democrats' win in November. But, but yeah, how did the Democrats do it? you know, in the fall? I mean, just good campaigning well, or sort of... there's several events that happened. I think one of the biggest was a redistricting uh, cases that were overturned in, in court. And so that gave the Democrats just by chance, uh, you know, they unpacked a lot of the districts. Uh, that occurred and there, I think there are 12 districts altogether that were found by courts to be wanting as, you know, so that, that so helped the, them a lot. So these are districts that were racially gerrymandered, packing a lot of black votes, so many black votes right. and voters into certain districts in order to dilute their vote. Right. And as you know, there's a movement to ha stop having the General Assembly decide redistricting, which will occur in 2021, uh, and rather have an independent commission to do so. That, there's been no real movement on that yet, but it's a, it's a, a lot of people really would like that. And so the other reason the Democrats were able to win was that there's a lot of anti-Trump uh, um, attitude in the state. Uh, he's not very popular in the state. Hillary Clinton took Virginia, especially in the suburbs. And so um, Democrats had used that in the 2018 congressional elections to win seats, and the same fervor carried over into the November election of this year. You know, some of the things that you and I have talked about week in, week out this year have been about sort of Virginia's changing demographics. You know, it's sort of a new, it's a new era in the state. Um, we have a much more uh, urban population, urban and suburban. Uh, we have a much uh, larger percentage of foreign-born population than even 20 or 30 years ago. Um, what What's this... You know, what are the implications of this demographic shift? Well, I think there are a number of things. Um, one of the things that Virginia is either interesting or infuriating, depending on your point of view, is um, the idea of a history, which may be made up. And people bought into that, just as a lot of people bought into the Confederate heritage idea. Well, newcomers in Virginia really aren't part of that. And uh, they're more modern thinking. They work, say, for more tech companies that really want, say, renewable power and really want better policies on, on you know, for women and minorities, uh, other people. And the numbers are there. You've got people in the northern Virginia suburbs and now in the Richmond suburbs of Henrico and Chesterfield who, you know, are thinking uh, they're younger and uh, more open-minded. Like you pointed out a moment ago, there's there's um, this sort of Second Amendment sanctuary uh, movement that's really burgeoned in the last few weeks since the Democrats won both houses in the state elections. It, it feels and looks a lot like a backlash, and it's a backlash from some of the more you know conservative reactionary folks in the state. Um, what's what's this look like? Where's this coming from? Well, the movement actually started in um, in Washington State. And it was in Colorado, too, and some other Western states. And right after the election, it just happened in Virginia. Spark. It's organic, and uh, it's not controlled from the top. Mm -hmm. 
And it kind of mirrors uh, sort of progressives were thinking about treating immigrant sanctuaries in some cities, although Virginia doesn't have any specifically. And, um, you know, this is pretty legal, legally shaky, I would think, about saying we're not going to enforce laws or we're going to... Um, to select which laws we want. However, the Commonwealth attorney and the sheriff of any county, uh, for example, uh, they, they are constitutional officers, and they can pick and choose pretty much. There is a certain give there of what they want to enforce. Of course, there are a number of gun control proposals, uh, such as red flag warnings, um, you know, banning certain types of assault rifles. And I think there are four or five of them that are going to be heard in this coming General Assembly. The, the people who back the sanctuary movement say there's no compromise here and that we're just, we want no more gun control laws. And it's really hit a kind of a Trumpian kind of wedge uh, that it's okay now to really state it, you know. So that's kind of yeah. going to be, it's a little scary sometimes. Yeah. So 2020 is coming just around the corner. Uh, uh, you know, I know we're not really in the prognostication business, but at the same time, what's going to happen in 2020? Well, the big news, of course, is going to be the elections, uh, federal elections and a presidential election. That that will be the big news in 2020. You've got a number of, of um, very strong Congress people uh, like Elaine Luria in Virginia Beach area and from Virginia Beach and Abigail Spanberger, who's in the uh, Henrico area. They both have been very strong. They've gotten a lot of national media attention. And they were actually very instrumental in leading uh, the Democrats for impeachment. Mm -hmm. And they really kind of broke the ice for that in many ways. They weren't the only ones. Of course, Nancy Pelosi was. But they were very dynamic. And they're being targeted very seriously by the GOP. Nick Friedis is going to run against Spanberger. And that's going to be very interesting. As far as the General Assembly, um, it's going to be interesting as well. Because Governor Northam has proposed a $135 billion two-year budget which includes a lot of spending for things that sort of had been neglected before, such as um, uh, mental health, $228 million for that, possibly raising the taxes on cigarettes by double, doubling to $0.60, cents, I think the proposal is, for a pack, which Virginia has had the second lowest uh, cigarette tax rate in the country, and also maybe raising gasoline taxes to fix roads. And uh, there are a lot of other things that are, you know, uh, going to happen too, as far as some more money for education, pre, pre-K, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's more likely to get passed now because the Democrats control it. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. Celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. So Nathan, I talked about your scooter. Oh. With Charles <laughs> tomorrow this week. You know, I just think it's a, a fun way to get over to Central Grounds uh, without uh, burning a bunch of gasoline and even more importantly, without trying to find a parking spot on grounds at UVA. Did everyone know that Razor now makes electric scooters? They, they have for a long time, actually. In fact, there's an even an entire forum of, uh, of people out there like modding their Razor scooters, adding more batteries, adding more wattage to their, their electric motors. I mean, it's really ridiculous. Next thing you know, you're going to have like one of those giant uh, speakers from downstairs strapped to the front of it. It's, it's going to happen. The sound system. So if you can't tell, this segment uh, wrapping up Soundboard today in this episode is all about WTJU's uh, holiday end-of-year navel-gazing. And I'm here with Mary Garner-McGee, and this is Nathan Moore. 
And we're really proud to uh, have been producing Soundboard this year. Mary Garner McGee is um, probably the biggest news to the show in a long time. And <laughs> uh, that she's a new staffer here at WTJ, working part-time and uh, heading up our, our podcast division. Um, nascent and burgeoning that it is. But, you know, the other big thing here at the station, of course, is that we are in a new space. Uh, we moved in here in late March and have been at the old sneaker views on Ivy Road since uh, March 23rd, to be exact. Um, so if you haven't been down here to see it yet, come on down. Just uh, call the front office or shoot us an email, wtju at virginia.edu. We love giving tours and would love to show you where we record this very podcast in real time. So speaking of making podcasts, Soundboard is going to continue in 2020, but with some changes. What's yeah. going on? So I have spent many, 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 many hours in this room trying to edit down around a half an hour of fantastic, interesting answers from Charlottesville Tomorrow and from all the guests that we've had on into very short eight to 10 minute segments. And I was talking to Nathan about this one day and we were like, maybe both of those segments need a little bit more space. So we are spinning off two new podcasts from this one podcast. The other reason, uh, incidentally, is that we also find that some people really want to find out and hear about local things and, and Charlottesville news and Charlottesville issues and Albemarle concerns. Some people are more into the state politics and understanding what's going on in the General Assembly. And so we're actually shearing off the Charlottesville Tomorrow segment and the Peter Galaska segment, and we're making two whole new podcasts. So Soundboard will continue as Charlottesville Soundboard. That's the name, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, the state segment, the state podcast, is going to be called Bold Dominion, Understanding State Politics in a Changing Virginia. So yeah, two new podcasts coming your way in 2020, Charlottesville Soundboard and also Bold Dominion. So one for local and one for state. And Charlottesville Soundboard will sound pretty familiar to y'all. The big difference is just that Charlottesville Tomorrow segment is going to get a little bit longer. And what has been the third segment is also going to get a little bit longer. And for Nathan and Peter Galaska, you'll have to check out Bold Dominion. That's right. Bold Dominion is going to be a whole new thing because Peter Galaska will be joining us as one of the uh, journalist voices. I'm also going to be working with the uh, reporters over at the Virginia Mercury, a fairly new uh, all online news outfit that covers the state house in a really deep and, and thorough way. They also really follow stories in a smart way and, and get into policy um, in a way that's accessible and, and helps build understanding. We're also going to have a variety of guests. Um, the new representative uh, representing the Charlottesville area. Sally Hudson is going to join us on a fairly regular basis, and we'll see who else turns up. Exciting. Do you have a theme song yet? I do have a theme song. Can you hum it? No. I don't, do we I not don't, have I the don't. licensing yet? Oh, no, we have the licensing. I just can't remember how it goes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, ask me in a few weeks after I've edited several episodes. Okay, sounds good. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
We are now the Virginia Audio Collective, and so it's a collective of podcasts based here at UVA and in Charlottesville with about, what, now 14 or 15 uh, member podcasts who are producing stuff at this little public access kind of studio that we've got, supported by WTJU week in, week out, and making great audio happen. (laughs) Oh, and the website. The website is virginia.audio. Who knew that .audio was a domain? I know, it's very extension. Yeah, or if, I don't know, if you feel like typing something more common, we also have virginiaaudio.org. Last thing, too, I guess, as we close out this segment, I just want to say how how pleased I am to be a part of WTJU, part of Soundboard and part of the Virginia Audio Collective, knew that it is. You know, another thing in 2020 that we will continue to do forever and always is be really rooted in our mission, which is to bring people together through shared music and conversation. And with the podcast network here, telling stories and providing a platform for new voices. And it's something that I wake up and come to work and I feel really thrilled to be a part of this thing. And also really glad that you're a part of it too, as a listener, as part of this community. And so thank you for listening. Wholesome, wholesome. and sappy. Wholesome yeah. Is wholesome. Yeah. Thank y'all for being part of it. And thanks for listening to soundboard this week. We'll catch you in January. Well, that does it for this week's edition of soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Myrna Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at the Virginia Audio Collective. That's Virginia.audio.